What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. In this episode, I don't think you're going to be bored as we are talking about main topic of injury prevention and, and the different terminologies and how we go about doing that as strength coaches, sports performance practitioners. Um, Greg, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our guests and our members out there so uh, we can have a good little chat. Yeah, uh, sure. So I'm a a physical therapist or a physio in uh, Toronto. I used to be a chiro. Uh, before all that, I did like an undergrad in kinesiology. That's maybe exercise science in the States. I don't know what you guys call it. Yeah. So, yeah. And then a master's in biomechanics, primarily like exercise science as well, but and the spine. And uh, I was a strength coach while I was doing my master's and then while I was in clinical practice as a chiro. And then I went back to school for physio. Uh, and the whole time, for like 10 years when I was in school, I was also a researcher and all that stuff. And now I, I, I see patients and clients, uh, but I primarily like teach and just read a lot of research and try to keep teaching. That's it. That's awesome. Um, what got you interested in sport? Uh, oh, I no, it was like a fluke. You know, I was in high school in Thunder Bay, like a small town, and I thought I was going to be a cop, and everyone's like, just take like gym hold on no way you thought you were going to be a police officer like an rcmp officer that's like our royal mounted police here the reason i say that is i actually have my bachelor's degree in criminal justice i thought i was going to be a police officer and i was playing i was playing um football and my offensive line coach asked me to coach with him when i was done graduating so i went i was actually in grad school for criminal justice coaching offensive line and tight ends and working at his gym and i'm like i hate the like ed strength and conditioning i knew the answers to the questions in grad school classes and i'm like i'm not even answering the question because i was just bored and i hated it so that's why like that's fascinating to me that we have that similar background yeah my i i was like teaching trampoline in high school like uh, i was doing the levels and the guy who would teach it was a cop and i just started hanging out with him he's so i thought oh that i could do that he's a cool guy yeah <laughs> Is that how you got into training and working with the gymnastics people that you talk about on the website? Uh, well, that was just as, as a, when I was a kid, and then I got away from it from years. And then my, my girl started doing cheerleading. So I personally just picked up gymnastics again at like 44 okay. or whatever. I didn't do anything for, for decades. So I work with some gymnasts and stuff like that, but it's not <clears> like a, a specialty. How a For hobby. you – yeah, for you working in, I mean, you have an extensive background. Like you just said, uh, chiropractor, researcher, biomechanic background, um, f- a physio, like, how, and strength coach. Like, how do you blend all of that together and do great in each of the little areas when working with your clients? Like, where do you where do you put the hat on, take it off, and being in the different roles? So, uh, uh, if you find like your your fundamentals of what helps people get get better, your profession. It uh, doesn't matter whether you're a, a chiro, physio, strength coach. Like, my approach has always been activity and, like, good advice, uh, you, you know. So it, the, the designation doesn't mean anything. If you're up to date on the literature of what you, like, if you found your fundamentals, it, it shouldn't, that, that will dictate what you do, not your designation after. What has been some of the best research that you've found? And as you dive into rabbit holes, like how do you recommend to 
people that you work with or any of your, excuse me, your students, and then any of our listeners, like, okay, if you're going to start filtering out the BS and research, this is kind of the course of action that you should take. So it's funny, I'm, I'm just writing a blog now saying like, uh, there's too much research and too many people make you feel like you don't know enough, you know, <laughs> by celebrating research too much. And so I'm, it's hard to, it's, and I love reading research, so it's maybe hard for me to say that, but I think it's overblown. What I think people need to do is find their fundamentals, right? You get your fundamentals of why you help people, and then you just get better at that, right? So like one piece of research, not really research, it's just a body of research, is like pain, injury, performance, it's all biopsychosocial. So when it comes to like human function and pain, everything matters. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, you know Chris Beardsley? He's like the strength and conditioning he doesn't, it's funny, we just, I'm just minimizing the value of research, but he writes a research review. <laughs> <laughs> Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. But he had me write something for him years ago. I don't even think it's on, he took it off his website, but it was like, I said, strength coaches or coaches in general were the first biopsychosocialists, right? Like good old school coaches knew that when like little Johnny was 17 and he's in the weight room and he just broke up with his girlfriend, that those are the weeks maybe you take it easy and make sure he mm. sleeps well and backs off. They, they a lot, coaches with before research, they knew that everything mattered when it came to performance and injury. It wasn't just strength or stability or when some stupid muscle turns on. It's like your whole fucking system. Like they, <laughs> they looked at things as a complex system. They may not have used those words that people use now, but they knew that it was everything in your life was important. So there's a fundamental for me. Like everything matters. How do you optimize the system? Or at least, you know, how do you cope with the shitty stuff that's going on? Right. So that, that's what I work on. Have you found that there's any one particular variable that shows up the most common in people? And the reason I ask is I did a research project with two uh, professors at my old school, and that's what we were trying to investigate. And, you know, anecdotally, we're still in the process of writing our manuscripts and articles, but it was like we had a a professor who worked in the business analytics and she was like, there's no one variable (laughs) for each of these kids. Like, no, no, it's, it's, it's a system. And it's complex, and what it, to me what it means is that that's great. Like, you can navigate uncertainty in that way. Like, you don't have to be perfect. Not everyone has to be. You can have mm. a lot of shitty things going on. Like, we know anxiety, depression will contribute to your risk of injury or pain. But it's really unfair to tell some kid, or anyone, like, I don't want to talk about kids, but, like, you have to cure your anxiety and depression. Bullshit. You have to find ways to cope with that. And then you would say there's no one way to do it, which is awesome because it means lots of different people with different skill sets can help the same people. Mm, that's or a good some, point. someone's in trouble and they're struggling and they've seen lots of people. It doesn't mean there isn't somewhere out, someone out there that's going to find the right thing for them because they have a different approach. Right? But, so that's how I view it. Options. Is there any research out there about the sense of community and sense of belonging within the return to play or within the, you know, athletic performance realm? Yeah, it's more like that stuff is that's the biopsychosocial aspect. It's one of those things where we all say, oh, yeah, we got to address the social. But when you look at the research, it's it's harder to study. And it doesn't get as much importance. But I think it's huge. Like, I'll work with, like, 
a 55 year old man and I'll talk about social isolation. Like what, what, what is, what are your friends look like? Or how are you getting out with and doing the things that you love? You know, and it's such a, that's a weird sell for someone with hip pain. You're like, are you going out with your buddies on Thursday night? Do, do you know what I mean? Like it, it, but it's super important, especially once you realize pain and injury is so multifaceted. You start realizing, well, what influences the health of your system and social interaction and having meaning and friends and all of those things is, is huge. Do you think that that happens because within the injury cycle that people, they feel like they've lost a set of independence and the ability to do things and then they have to like, they're so timid that they don't want to lose it again that they don't even put themselves out there? Yeah, we call that. That's part of it. That's another aspect. That that's what in the pain world we would call biographical suspension, where people put their life on hold when they have a pain or injury, and then they lose like their sense of self, and then they're, they're kind of lost there. That's why I think people were shitting on CrossFit years ago. You, you know what I mean? Because maybe some of the programming was suspect. Uh-huh. Um, but I was like, <laughs> it's awesome. You get people just going out there at whatever time in the day, and they have their tribe or whatever jargon they use, I don't know shit about CrossFit, at their box, uh, I guess people don't do CrossFit anymore because of the other issues, but anyways, they, 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 that social fabric that people get and yeah. feeling a sense of belonging, they'll be like, oh, my back pain feels better, it must have been the 30 burpees I did after the, after the 97 clean and jerks, <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's because you made friends with Kathy. Yeah, you're you're right about that because that is one of the things about CrossFit that is kind of one of the people would call it a cult, but the fact that there is a sense of community and it's a um I, we had John Wellborn on the show and he was talking about how like he does jujitsu and people being like, Hey, you know, are you coming up to jits? You showing a jujitsu like yeah. having that sense of belonging and um, that's got to be interesting in the dynamics of having a team, but then within that injury continuum, if you're removed from it and then being brought back into it, how do you work with anybody in that, you know, continuum and world? So let, let, let's say you're working with a hockey team and someone has a concussion. Uh, like this is when I work with the, the girls hockey at, at Queens, like you need those, those girls and they were under 18. So the girls, like they need to be part of the team. They don't need to do their rehab in a dark room in the gym. They, when the girls have practice, they have to be out with the team and they can ride a bike or do something at the same time. So that would be the idea. You work with a runner. Like when your running friends are, are going out and you're meeting every Wednesday night at 7, you go out but you just do a walk and you do the cool down and the warm up with them and then you go Oof. out for coffee after. Yeah. You got to do, you have to do that stuff. It's just baby steps. Don't, don't minimize like 10 minutes of activity still do the things that you love and and that'll change if you just withdraw you're losing so many other benefits there man i feel like hearing you say that you're probably speaking to so many strength coaches because you're speaking to me with it too because within that return to play continuum i know with a lot of the time you know what we've been pushing to our members is hey have them doing things if they can't do this part of practice how can we keep you know if that's plan a how can plan b be as close to that and there were times for me at my old school, if we had an athlete that had, I would be always the strength coach where there was me and two others. And so between the three of us, they would take kind of the longer 
uh, athletes that would be out for a while. Anybody that's coming back to play sooner, I would be the one, you know, rehabbing them. And it'd be like, okay, you can't do this part of practice, but you can do this part. Go with your position coach over here. You come back with me. We're going to go find a spot on the field that's pretty similar. You're not going to do, you're allowed to do routes on air, but they're doing seven on seven. So you're going to run that route that you're supposed to watch, see the signal, run the route with me. That, and like, I loved that, but I feel like if you don't have a sport coach that actually understands that and will work with you, it means nothing, right? Yeah, it's got to get buy-in everywhere. Yeah, it's huge. Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor, Team Builder. If you have any online training platform needs, Team Builder is the go-to place. Team Builder has the ability to integrate with velocity-based training tools. They have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. <clears throat> How have you been able to continue to build buy-in over the length of your career? Oh, you know what? A lot of it, is, so there's, there's two areas. One, when you work with patients with rehab they may not realize that they have to do that stuff they think that they need to be fixed first like their joints out of alignment so a lot of it's just education and giving people permission to say no no no, go back to crossfit or the sport or you're allowed to deadlift again but just we'll modify it in some way people just don't have the knowledge because there's some shitty belief about their spine out there that's often what it is there's so much cognitive restructuring um and then and then the the other idea is more time off this is more working with like maybe older athletes who remember who they were eight years ago. And we're like, you have to forget you have a past. I don't care that you would run 10K in 42 minutes as like an easy jog. It's still cool to go out there and do 3K or, you know, I'm selling like minimum effective. That's why I like a lot of the strength and conditioning research I like is the minimum effective dose stuff where you can say, no, no, one set twice a week, that's a start. It will get you stronger. I know you used to do 12 sets a week, but you have to get there from somewhere. So don't, don't minimize like that, that baby steps there. No, that's, and I feel like for our listeners out there, how do they handle that? You know, when you're working with a new population, like how did you be able to transition that thought process where maybe at first you were thinking that and you were like, yeah, you know what? Like what was almost the epiphany for you where you're like, you know what? It is okay. Oh, so I might, uh, clinical, I never had any epiphanies. I was, <laughs> I had like good influence from the start. I don't know what it was. I I was always like, yeah, just rub some dirt on it. You know that idea. Like you can keep doing something. So I never had to have like a like classic physio is the fi- find it and fix it mentality. And once you fix all these dysfunctions, then you can start doing the shit that you love. And I never had to have a turnaround. I was always like, no, do, do the stuff that you love. You know, that, that's the hugest, important, that's the most important part of rehab. And then we can do all the little stuff too, if we need to. How about any of the strength coaches that are listening right now that operate in this new high, and I say new, but it's, it's still continuing to roll out this high performance world where maybe they're in rehab meetings with, uh, you know, themselves, the head athletic trainer, the head physio, and maybe even an orthopedic surgeon. What is some suggestions that you would have to the strength coaches of like, hey, make sure you do this, make sure you don't do this in, in terms of being in the sandbox and playing well with everybody else in the field? 
Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm probably not the best person. I've never had to do that because I'm always like an independent practitioner. But we kind of do that like at a distance, you know, because they'll be seeing different providers and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So I guess it's more like, like you don't want to if you don't want to get into those professional pissing matches. <laughs> That's the hugest thing. We more deal with it like. Say a doctor says, oh, you have to watch, you can't do squats, you know, because you have knee osteoarthritis or something like that. And that's why I have knee pain. So that's something that you'd have to deal with. And I, and I typically recommend you do like the yes and approach. Be like, yeah, yeah, that, not yeah, yeah, don't yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, yes, of course. <laughs> that sometimes changes on a scan, you know, with knee away, they can contribute to part of your knee pain, but it's not the complete picture. You know, the doctor's not wrong, but there's other things going on. And that's why exercise and activity are still so important because they will help you tolerate these changes on the scan that the doctor's worried about. They won't make it worse. They'll, they'll build up your resilience to it. So I tend to do like that. They're not wrong, but it's not the full picture. And yeah, like you said, maybe you're not like, what would be then your ideal situation? Like you said, okay, you're not working with strength coaches directly, but let's say you're employed by, you know, some professional team and you're the head physio and you're, and then you knew that you're going to be working in any return to play continuum with people. What would you like to see out of that relationship? Uh, Utopia. I usually ask what they're doing. And if I see the good stuff, I focus on that and double down on that and build on that. So sometimes I'll rarely, not sometimes, sounds like it's every week, but sometimes like some physio will want to do like a, a meeting with me because they're, I don't know, they work with some sport team and they have some athlete that they're not sure about in, in, the, in the rehab. And I, I'm one of those people, I just, I just said, tell me what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, that looks awesome. And then I just kind of repeat it and then just make sure that they're doing things to, to, related to that, just that they're doing that better. Like I look for the good stuff that people are doing. Does that make sense? Is that what you meant? Is that yeah? Yeah, Yeah. and then because I'm I'm thinking like for a lot of our college uh, our college or professional um, members and listeners out there, they're like the head strength coach and they're working with like I said the head athletic trainer, the physio, and if there's a surgical case where okay maybe acutely it's the you know PT working with the AT and the strength coach is kind of away from the involved limb in a surgery, Um, and then that kind of blended approach or maybe everybody's looking at it at one time so for our listeners out there you know you being the expert in that physio world what would be the best way for our strength coaches to collaborate and work with during that seamless process to you know keeping the athlete at the center of it and just working well with everybody i mean the the biggest things like so there's so many different ways to skin a cat so we don't if if you work with a team like that you have to respect your strength coaches that they're going to be able to you, you know, build people up. So the, the biggest thing is just what are the contraindications? What's the worst case scenario? What are the things that I can't do? And then what do I have free reign with? That's, that's what I would want, like, strength coaches to know. Like, these are the things that you absolutely can't do. And other than that, let's, let, let's go forward. Like, that, that's what I would work on if I was working with other, you know, strength coaches, with that strength coach and I was a physio. And how much of it is, you know, being able to dance on that fine line of, hey, you know, we're pushing the envelope and we're we're being, you know, um, aggressive versus being negligent. Like, how do you navigate those waters as a physio and what would you recommend to, to coaches, strength coaches? 
So that's that's the hardest thing. It's that's the classic. That's the always the physio conundrum. If you work with this activity model, when do you expose and when do you protect? Yeah. Right. So some of that might be more talking to the surgeon. Like when do you? Because the thing with pain, a lot of pain doesn't tell you anything. It's outside of the problem. It's its own problem. It's not an indication of tissue or something like that. But sometimes it is. So you're always wondering, when do I need to respect the, the tissue, which kind of means more protection, right? So like that, that's often going to the, the surgeon and, and stuff like that. When can we start to push? What, what type of, asking them what type of pain is okay. That, that, that would be the idea. Because there are some cases where surprisingly you do want to back off and, and respect it. What has been some of the, again, without not naming names of anybody or, or cl- clients or patients, um, what has been some of the the best things that you've seen in terms of pushing the envelope with respect to certain injuries, whether it's a shoulder, a knee, a hip, that you've been like, hey, you know what? More is better, more aggression versus you know taking time. What are kind of some big general heuristics for our strength coaches that are working with athletes coming back? So I, a, a general heuristic, once pain is like it's its own issue it's going on for months and years and you're not worried that the tissue is compromised in some negative way you know like it's not stress fracture that's the thing you that's something you got to unload and do something else and you can't really you're gonna have to push it eventually but if it's acutely painful then you you respect the pain but then when, when things get long term and the pain just seems weird and different, but you really still understand it. Someone has explained, no, 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 there's, there's nothing sinister going on here. There's no cancer, no inflammatory condition. There's no stress fracture. This is just pain. Then we start saying, okay, it's time to poke. We respect the pain. We just don't let it, you know, drive the car. It gets a, a seat in the back, right? And then I've had so many cases once like, you not so, plenty of cases where you explain to people, we can't trust the pain, it's not telling us anything. You're allowed to start running and doing triathlons again or sprinting and stuff like that. And as long as you don't have some massive flare up in the next few days, it's cool and it can hurt. You know, that, that's my favorite thing. And like in the re- research wise, we see that, so I just said respect tissue, but sometimes you don't have to. In the hamstring strain world, this is Jack Hickey's stuff that people are interested in it. They, he, have you seen this stuff where he explicitly pushes people into pain immediately, not like within the first week after a hamstring tear? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So I just said sometimes you have to, so it just depends on the tissue, it seems. So muscle strains seem to be one of the ones where you can push a little more. Like I wouldn't do with a bone injury, but yeah. So what is... Uh... Uh, I mean, I already wrote it down. I'm assuming our listeners are, are going to write it down. What is uh, Jack Hickey stuff about the hamstring tear, and where would people be able to find more about it? Yeah, so his his papers, his best ones are in JOSPT. Um, that's where he's published it, where it's the pain monitoring model of hamstring strain rehab. And one group, they weren't allowed to push into pain with the exercises. The other group, they are allowed to poke into pain if they felt safe with it, and they wouldn't have a flare-up the next day. And he's doing, like... Nordic hamstrings and heavy loading like right away and it was painful painful exercise and it was fine and there's a few reviews on that Ben Smith is someone who's written a review on painful exercise wow that's absolutely fascinating um I know like it's yeah yeah. keep going keep going just just quickly sorry and and here's the thing it wasn't it wasn't like that group outperformed the other group 
they got a little bit stronger. And they had a little bit greater fascicle length, which they think with hamstring tears might be something significant. Um, but to me, the key was they weren't worse off, right? Because sometimes you're going to have pain no matter what you do. Yeah. Yeah. You wait to be pain-free, you do nothing. Uh, yeah, I guess the question, excuse me, that I have that I'd want to be looking at that I'm sure our, our listeners will be wondering is like, hey, did they were they able to come back sooner? Because it's like if it happened in season and it's something where the athlete could come back sooner to competition and then they're able to like... It doesn't look like that. Maybe in the newer stuff that I haven't seen this. It's only been a couple of years, but it's more like they might have been a bit stronger. That was. I don't think they they returned faster. Yeah. Um. So to everybody listening out there, we kind of first originated this conversation to talk about the you know the word the phrase injury prevention, and most people know how I feel about it. And um, Greg, and listen, Greg has the opinion, and I want to learn from you know the word injury prevention. Blah blah. Like we're not here to to overly. I'm not here to debate it. I just want to hear your side of it. Where you know how can practitioners prevent injury or, or just kind of your philosophy on it oh how can we prevent injury or yeah how yeah. can or is it real or again just sure d- dive into that i mean with the word my i know people uh, i think it's you know where it started with i thought it was tim hewitt that started it years ago with the acl stuff saying we couldn't prevent because not all injuries got prevented we can just reduce the risk and i was like well the whole point of risk reduction is to prevent some injuries you just don't know which ones will be prevented <laughs> That's the issue. Because, yes, like I think we can prevent some injuries. We just have no idea which ones we're going to prevent. That's a good point. That, 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 that's it. So there, and there's definitely going to be flukes and all that stuff, and things will happen. And, and, uh, so we can't oversell the idea of injury prevention because sometimes shit just happens. You know? Like, I, I know no one likes to, to hear that, but, but, but it's true. And then at the same time, even if you do everything right, some people are still going to get injured. It's just the, the nature of life. You know, people are still going to have pain and there's because there's so, so many variables. So that's all. My, that's my only take on injury prevention. Uh, and then to really, to really, the implications of injury prevention, that is like, I, I again speak biopsychosocially. You, you just want to optimize what you can optimize. And that's, it's not just strength training, it's everything and some, just that question of what, what can make people healthier? That's what I would advocate for injury prevention. And then take this really holistic, holistic view. Because you probably know as a strength coach, you'll give like a wicked program and you're working with them in the gym, but if they're not sleeping well and they're eating like shit and they have all kinds of stress, then it doesn't matter how much they're squatting. Yeah, or even you know, what's the surface that they're playing on? Is it an old? Right. Is it an old artificial turf? How are they? Like you said, all of those different stressors, which is why, like for me and for our you know younger listeners out there, that's essentially what it's, what I'm trying to help educate. Like, look, I don't want a young coach to go into what these new high performance meetings too with ATs and DPTs and you know physios and sport coaches being like, Hey, you know, we're doing this injury prevention program. Like I'll never forget, um, a female athletic trainer was, she was doing some work in one of the auxiliary weight rooms at my old, um, university. And she was like, Oh yeah, we're doing this ACL prevention program. I was like, I just, if I'm you, 
I would not be saying that because if you go to the coach <laughs> and then if injuries hat, like if you just think about it from like, if you're not the person selling it, if you're the buyer and you're like, if the sport coach is like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be doing this knee prevention program. What the heck's going on? And then you then start to try to backtrack and be like, well, wait a minute. I can't prevent injuries. There's all these multi-factors. I'm just trying to educate coaches on that to help them better their career path. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. I just say you can't you can't prevent all injuries, but you can prevent some. So it's like a t- tiny quibble. I I know what you're saying. I and yours is the like the cover your ass. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's cover your ass. ass. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not fair because because then people are like asking something of you which is too much. Yeah, correct. Where it's like, hey, you said we're doing this yeah, injury yeah, prevention yeah. program, and that's where it's just like, if we can get and and that's where uh, I think to to your point too. Um, Dr. Thompson, who is a program chair at Springfield College in Massachusetts, his he kind of added the notion of like, hey, we can reduce the potential severity. So let's say it is a, a, a hamstring injury and it's only grade one versus grade two. Or if you have a like um, even the guy who, oh, my gosh, the quarterback most recently, Jordan Love, he went to go throw a ball and like fell and it was like total ACL mechanism, but he didn't tear his knee. And it's like, okay, you reduce the potential severity. Maybe he has a knee sprain and he hyperextended it and he's not hurt versus could have completely torn his knee. And it's like, do we help reduce the potential severity of knee injury because we did prepare these athletes to be robust, to be anti-fragile, right? So then you, uh, you prevented time lost. Correct, but it's like, did you, did you really? Or, yeah, exactly, and that's where it's like, did we, because at the same vein, like, if if we're part of the speed, strength, agility, but what about all those other biosocial, biosocial yeah. factors that you talked about? Like, maybe they're well-rested, maybe their girlfriend and them didn't have yeah, a, be- yeah. like, maybe they got fed, and, you know what I mean? Like, all of those other factors um, that, that contribute in the health and wellness of the athlete, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's just semantics. It's just because if you look at the epidemiological definition of prevention, it it includes it describes it as the reduction of risk. It's oh. never one hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. yeah That's no, like I the st- standard definition. Otherwise, like force, we would never be able to use the word prevention if it meant one hundred percent. Because unless we'd say, "I don't like the word prevention," fine, you can use it in a sentence like that. But like, <laughs> you can. Because we can't prevent all forest fires, but we could prevent some. We can't prevent all unwanted pregnancies, but we can prevent some. So we still use it. Yeah, Smokey the Bear would Smokey the Bear would be mad <laughs> at us because he says only you can prevent forest fires, right? That's it. That's it. Uh, but you know what? That I know that video you're talking about with that quarterback uh, going into the injury mechanism. I this is a huge goal over people, but I actually don't think that was the injury mechanism. Okay. Um, because it's this is the problem with 2D analysis is parallax error. So you'll when it looks like you're going to knee abduction or what people would typically call knee valgus, uh-huh. knee abduction. The, so the foot abducts from the knee. When you're watching 2D um, knee flexion combined with movement that will look like movement into in the frontal plane. That's the problem. We wrote a paper on this a few years ago. I was like the third author, so no, I did nothing. Um, but like, it was most valgus or knee abduction that we see isn't really knee abduction. It's movement in the in the sagittal plane, but because it's filmed on 2D, it looks like it's knee abduction or valgus. So what's the 
anecdote or the way uh, to better understand it. He didn't actually go into valgus. That's it. Just looked like he did. It's an illusion. It's called parallax error when you just have two D. That's why anytime you want to measure motion in that it, like valgus motion, so it's a three D motion, you need at least two cameras, and then oh. you have to interpolate your data. Otherwise, it's like you're tricking yourself. Okay, talk more about this because I That's worked at... It. I, no, I, no. This is my old biomechanics. I don't know anything like, more. Please, <laughs> no, like, please talk about this more because I know practitioners out there that have... Um, they call it 3D motion capture, but they only have one camera uh, in front. Uh, please, uh, yes, no, dive no, into this. No, no, no. This, right, this is Fraser Phillips stuff. You, and it's old biomechanical stuff that they know for 30 years. You can't... You get... It's the because you're not measuring the depth with just that camera in the front, and so it looks like the knee is is abducted, but it's just flexed, and it's flexed and it's behind the person, so your eye will think that it's abducted. It's it's not. It's not up to the side. It's just flexed and in a different position. And what is that called? Camera the two. parallax. Par- parallax error, I think. And yeah. So again, for any, again, any of our listeners, they're just like me. They might have heard it, been like, so what exactly is it? So that way they can better understand it and talk with the people in their high performance team. You're, it's essentially you from a two D video. You can't talk about three D motion that's not in the primary plane. So you can film someone running from the side, and a and a camera would be great at uh, hip flexion, hip extension, uh-huh. knee flexion, but you can't. You, you can't estimate, you know, rotation like hip internal rotation or abduction and frontal plane. Same, same thing. And with, when filming someone from the front, uh, it might look like they're moving in the frontal plane, so knee abduction, but the be, it could actually just be knee flexion, and it just looks like it's abducted. So, so and this is this is biomechanics, and this is even a problem with three D biomechanics. This is what Fraser's saying, like. Most of our measures of knee abduction, they'll say it's five to six degrees. This is with two cameras, not even parallax error. He's like, that isn't happening. Even th- two cameras get get tricked. Like you, you the, so most studies you read that talk about movement in the frontal plane, knee abduction, or definitely the coronal plane with hip internal rotation, you shouldn't trust the data that much. <laughs> How many cameras do you need then, and where did they need to I be positioned? I, so Fraser stuff, you, you don't you. You need bone pins. You need to go in and actually oh. <laughs> measure exactly what the bones are doing and then have at least two cameras. Because his okay. work is like, for knee abduction, that's the potential injury mechanisms. He's saying like, when it looks like there are five to six degrees of knee abduction, even with multiple cameras, it's really only moving one to two degrees. Hmm, that's interesting because to me, you know, I'm start like looking at it from the hat of one of our listeners that is, you know, a strength coach and there's, you know, these newer biomechanical labs where they're in a room and they maybe have a camera on the top corner of all four of those. Like, is that there's better. That's, that's good. That's a good start. But one camera, no so good. Yeah. One camera. No. Cause again, I know, you know, I know some companies that, and they use like cameras from the old Xbox connects, right? Like that can't be very good. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would question that stuff because even the best <laughs> cameras in the world, like the Vicon and all that stuff, where there's multiple cameras, I know f- these really smart biomechanists have even said we can't even trust the best stuff for certain planes of motion. Definitely hip and toe rotation, that's just questionable. How then can you, being a, a, a biomechanist and a researcher, you know, understanding the cleanness of good clean data? What do you recommend to 
coaches, physios that do work in kind of more of the field setting where it's like, listen, we, we need this. We can't, we don't have the ability to put bone pins yeah. on people. Like what is, what is better than worse? Like, how do you, I, I mean, I had that fancy equipment for running years ago. Uh, you know, it was like $50,000. I didn't own it. It's just where I worked. And, um, I would really have people step back and say, is this information really guiding what you're doing? Does it really change or improve outcomes? Like it gets sold to you. And then, and then, then you would say, cause often it'll, it's to identify some deficit or some weird motion movement pattern. And then you have to go back and say, is that movement pattern really so bad? Like you could, you could say this with knee abduction or the knee abduction moment as a risk factor for ACL tears. People would say, oh, that's a risk factor. And then when you look at the, the prevention programs or injury risk reduction programs, they really just create a good, robust athlete. Correct. And that knee abduction movement doesn't change after the program. You've just built a tolerance to the movement pattern. So it's like you always want to go back and say, is this variable really a factor? It's like pronation with running. Like people thought it was really bad. And when you look at the 30 years of research, it's just how we absorb load and it's not so bad. It might, it, it might be a, a factor for performance. I don't know. Um, but for injury, it's like, meh. So like we worry about things. And so you always want to go back. Like, is it really so bad? These things that I'm measuring, are they really changing what I'm doing? And that, yeah, that would go back to the whole, are you just measuring to measure? Or are you actually using it to help you in a outcome-based process for your athletes, clients, patients, right? Yeah, but then I say all that and it might, there's, it could build buy-in and all of those things and all that stuff. It'd be like the whole thing 15 years ago with scapular dyskinesia. Like people were worried about how the scapula moves. Yeah, that was like the big thing. Like everybody's got winging scaps. Yeah, and, that, and when you look at the research, it just didn't, you can have wonky scapular motion. It wouldn't predispose someone to injury. But even back then you would say, okay, let's, so even if you thought it was a variable, and you're working with a team of handball players or something like that, the person who has the wonky scap, they're gonna get a really robust strength and conditioning program for their scap, their shoulder, their core, their torso, all that shit. But the person who doesn't have the wonky scap, they're gonna get a really robust exercise program for their scap, their core, their rotator cuff, their hips. Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't, it doesn't really change practice, to me anyway, if you, that's, I guess it, it would depend on your principles. No, and that's it's interesting you say that because that brings me back to my study for my dissertation where we had a control group in addition to the force velocity interventions trying to improve uh, RSI. And like you just said, the people that in the control group, they were still being exposed to the normal sport training that everybody else was doing and the intervention groups, they had additional training. Oh. And that, And that's where like if you don't, you know, I've seen some other anecdotal research and, and even other uh, published research where that was the case, where they continued their normal sport training. But if you do have good normal sport training, you're going to continue to see those outcomes, especially if you have a very low trained athlete, right? I didn't know that. So I'm going to quote you now because I... <laughs> Uh, uh, this is more for the physio, if any physios listen up. People will not passive modalities like manual therapy or something like that. And they'll say it's, it's, it's inferior to specific exercise training to rehab someone. And I like exercise training. But at the same time, I used to work with clinicians and all they did was manual therapy. But they would tell people to keep doing their sport. 
And I would be like, what if manual therapy is helping because it gives someone permission to keep doing their sport and helps with their pain. And it's the sport that's the most important thing to do the rehab. And that's sort of, you just gave me ammunition for that theory. Does that yeah. make sense or did I just bastardize your research? No, no. The, <laughs> and that's where it was like, you know, I hypothesized that doing specific velocity-based training for people that needed velocity-based training to improve their uh, RSI and their force velocity profile, they got it. Yeah. But there was also within the normal sport training for the control group, they were still getting some version. They didn't get as much, yeah. but they were still getting velocity-based training so that – Excuse me, when you looked at the change score from the pre and post test, there was improvement by both and there was no statistical significance whether you were in either group simply because the control group was still yeah. exposed to the normal sport training. So that and so how great is going back to our start earlier about talking about rehab and keeping people out on the field? Yes. There you go. There's like you, that the sport is the rehab, which is such a hard message for people. They think it's yeah. all done in the clinic and you're like no, you could do it on the field, keep them where they should be. Exactly. And that's where like trying to get, but I feel like you have a forward thinking mind. And before off air, we talked about uh, Carmen Bot. Like I know she's also educating students and, and, and trying to be, you know, on the forefront of doing things in a proper way versus maybe some of a lot of the times people get hampered by either tech, uh, what a textbook might have said, you know, a couple of years ago. And it's like, OK, well, you know, this cert this organization says a jump is this and you have to do this before you do this. And doesn't it seem like that could be what's kind of holding it back oh totally then like that uh, part of my blog that i'm writing is a lot of the new research just undoes the shitty advice from the past that was never proven in the first place exactly but, yeah and, and and how does that how can we continue to push that forward then for you know the more and more younger coaches oh, and God. practitioners i don't know how do you get someone to vote for you that's like that's like behavior change and buy-in i, I I don't know, man, on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, no, I guess the more you can continue to just talk more and more about um, about the, the right topics. As you have clients and patients that have the pain receptors, is that is one of the first things that you personally go to, you know, utilizing manipulations within your chiropractic hat, or how will um, you go about that? No, we've already uh, talked about what I go to. I, I ask, like, what are you missing in your life? What do you want to be doing? Really? That's the most important question. And then, and then you're like, okay, what are the barriers to that? What do we do together to, to, to figure out, to get you to get your life back? And then yeah. once they find that they have their life back, it's almost like it's, they're able to kind of do those things. That's it. So my, my catchphrase is the doing is the fixing. You mm. don't need to fix. And, and, and then anytime I do that, when I teach like that, we always want to say like, okay, when is that insufficient? But for so many people, it's just, it's resuming the things that they love. That's what gets them better. It's not like getting their VMO to fire or whatever the theories are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. or getting the tendon stiffer. And then at the same time, we always say, okay, well, when is, when is the goal task insufficient? As a clinician, that's what we always want. So if your bias is let's do the things that you love, then you say, well, when is that not enough? Right? When do you have to do some specific uh, training or something? When do you have to do calf raises? you know, heavy loaded calf raises or when can you just start, when will walking and running be sufficient? Yeah. How do you balance that isolate to integrate premise within, you know, the world that you operate in? I think, I think it's what it's, what they're returning to. 
if someone has an Achilles tendinopathy and they're returning to walking and pretty low level activities, you don't need it. If they're returning to volleyball, you know, then we'll probably give some minimum effective dose, boring old heavy calf raises and a jumping program and stuff like that, as well as the return to sport. Right. I don't know if they need to. I just feel it's that's my cover your ass approach. What has been one of the biggest aha moments that you've had over the last three to five years in your career working with clients, whatever, educating students? It's more about being self-reflective would be the, I've probably had stronger opinions eight to 10 years ago, you know, thinking I knew this was really the right way to go. And now I'm, I'm more open to their, like a big tent idea that a lot of people can help people with different approaches because we don't really know the mechanisms. And so a lot of different things are helpful. So I'm really, I'm more open than I ever was to things that I was actually would denigrate in the past. <laughs> That's horrible. Like what's an example? Of oh my God, like this is crazy. I'm still not going to do it. But if I'm really consistent when I read the literature, it'd be passive modalities. They always get shit on. Because uh, there are probably are used inappropriately. But when you look at the research, they're really, they don't get outperformed by other things. It's pretty amazing by like, uh, which I don't like, but whatever. There might be someone who's 65 who doesn't want to do any exercise. And you do some passive modality and they start doing the things that they love again. And they feel happy and they have less knee or back pain. Well, that was helpful. They didn't want to do your stupid bird dogs or whatever you're going to give them. You know, what, you know what I mean? Like I'm open to that stuff. I'm open to that sort of uncertainty and complexity where I'm okay with the stuff I would have shit on before. Was there a specific... Um time frame like what what was able to help you with that because if any of our listeners are like man i i need uh i'm close to i'm close to accepting this that i used to not like what was there kind of the the light bulb that went off to allow you to do that uh i think it's probably my contrary in nature where i was saying something for a long time and then i heard other people saying what i was saying and i was like i don't know about that <laughs> that's coming out of that person's mouth maybe <laughs> maybe i gotta check what up my own biases here which are now that person's biases. I don't know. Like, I just, just, I always try to challenge, like, stress test my thoughts. If I have an opinion on something, okay, maybe for a month or so I'm going to argue the opposite of that to see how well my fundamentals are, how solid, are they truly fundamentals, or am I tricking myself? <clears throat> what has been one of the things that you look back in your, you know, career, tenure, that you're like, I wish I would have done more of this, or, hey, I can't believe I was doing that? Um... It, it maybe would have been like stuff that I wouldn't have done, I guess. But then pragmatically, I, like, I, I, no, I, I'm telling you, I was really, I got good people at the start where my fundamentals were there 20 years ago. Activity, get advice, you know. The only thing I wouldn't have done was went to chiropractic college. That was a waste of time. Really? Uh, Why is that? Oh, I should have just done my master's and then physio and then, yeah. There's no need for that, that extra step. That would be, <laughs> that's my biggest regret. <clears throat> if any of our listeners out there, because I know athletic trainers are starting to do it, and I've heard strength and conditioning coaches talking about it, getting the DPT, is that something, like how difficult is that? Is that something that you do recommend for strength coaches? Uh, yeah, and this is why. So I went back for my physio master's, which is whatever, the same as the DPT, because it gives you, it's your ticket. It gives you your license, and there's, it's a pragmatic expedience thing. You just need a license to practice under, 
and then people also look to you like they have the not the cachet but the history of doing rehab it's just an easier sell and so you just you'll just have more opportunities you you may not learn a dramatic amount um, but it, it doesn't matter. When I'd learned nothing in physio school. I'd already knew it because of the Cairo and my own education. But it gave me the ticket to say I'm a physio, and then now people will come to me. Yeah. It's, it sucks, right? But if you're not sure, go to Australia. It's only a two-year program, and I think you might save some money. And they're excellent there. Where do you see the field of sports performance you know, evolving and continuing to trend in terms of training athletes over the next three to five years? Uh, I, I, I think it's minimum. Again, this is only my bias. I think people are going to realize that there's a lot of, way to, lots of ways to achieve the same thing. Uh, and so maybe we'll get better at like the minimum effective dose stuff. What's the minimum you, you can do for optimal performance? But I'm not, I, I don't really know. That's what I'm interested in. What have you been, what have you found with respect to research on minimum effective dose and what would be places that you would guide our listeners to go and check out? Uh, probably Stu Phillips. I like his stuff and Brad Schoenfeld's work. That's typically where, and this may not be in the athletic population. So I guess it would be, this is what I, okay. So it'd be minimum effective dose and then when that sucks. That, that, that's what I'm always in. Whatever bias you have, okay, when is that not enough? Maybe that's what we'll, research can guide us in. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we've talked about here at Strength Coach Network is not only the minimum effective dose, but what's the maximum recoverable volume. So what's the most right. amount of work that you can ask somebody to do and they can still recover from it the next day? And how can you push that envelope and push that capacity year over year over the lifetime of the athlete with you? I'm, I'm with you on that. That'd be cool. <clears throat> Within the, the thought process of minimum effective dose, what is some of the best things that help athletes recover from training that you've seen outside of being able, like, okay, yeah, they need to be able to do the thing that they love to feel better, but what are some of the best tried and true principles of recovery that you've seen throughout the research over the last couple of years? Uh, so that's not a good area of mine. So I'm I'm kind of like, old school, lame, just, I don't, I don't think much can speed up recovery, from, but maybe I'm wrong. It just feels like the body's going to do its thing and just optimize what you got, you know, sleep, uh, go for a walk, eat well, do your homework. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I'm not sure. And, and, I'm, and at the same time, I used to be like anti-ice, like in 2005 or whatever. I thought I was an anti-ice hipster. Uh, and then now I'm like, whatever, who cares? If you want to, go for it. Just don't do too much. It's like everything's like moderation. Don't beat yourself up over whatever you do. Um, a little more lax. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong there. I should, maybe that, that's my next deep dive is recovery. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. I know you got uh, other things going on. For any of our listeners out there that have made it this far with us, where can uh, you recommend and tell them to continue to follow you on your journey? Um, my skateboarding and gymnastics journey is on my Instagram. There's not a lot of clinical. Ah, oh, there's some more clinical stuff on there. Uh, there's if you want to see some mediocre shit. Uh, that's just Greg Lehman, and my website's greglehman.ca. Awesome. Thank you very much, brother. You have a good rest of the day. Ah, thank you.